And tech does a lot for us now. I think we expect a lot of tech. I actually think our expectations of it are beyond what it actually does today. Welcome to the Small Talk podcast, brought to you by Small World, the agency that builds scale-up brands. Yeah, this is kind of the first episode we've done with another kind of agency leader. Not to suggest that we're agency leaders of any kind, but um, Jonathan is a, I guess, a, a mentor to us at Small World, but also operates in a in a similar world with similar types of businesses, but with a different type of business model, which is very uh, interesting and exciting. It'd be great if you could just start by giving a brief introduction to you, I suppose. Yeah, sure. So our background's in advertising and founders Van Rising originally come from the large agency network. So we're WPP and Publicist, Omnicom, a range of agencies within those. Lots of them have changed names now, so just easier to name them by network. And then we started a creatively led indie agency in 2010, just over 10 years ago, in the fairly classic mold. So it was as the ad industry rejuvenates, usually through startups that then get reacquired and so on and so forth. So we're very much part of that concept so and we did that for uh, five years and then we the minority acquired into a group then called Creston on London Stock Exchange now unlimited and then in 2018 end of 2018 we sort of spun it out again into Anne Rising which is a creative ventures firm specifically looking at marketing services brackets advertising for startups and scale-ups particularly scale-ups because that's when their uh, marketing money really comes into focus and they need to work out how they're going to deploy it and how they grow. They could also, they're also using media to scale really fast in ways that traditional brands weren't getting the same value out of. So that we started to focus very narrowly in on that sector and then that took us ever early into the journey into becoming a creative ventures company where we then create those brands and invest in them through a model we call creative capital. So we're part sweat equity services for equity model investors, accelerator incubator, and then part marketing services for scale-ups in one happy bundle. Yeah, and I guess that's where, so when I said, you know, there's similarities between us, but also uh, differences in the model, that's, I guess, where it comes in, this this word creative capital, which arguably you've you've kind of coined over the uh, last few years as, you know, some other, other people doing it, uh, in, largely in the US as well. But yeah. in, in the UK, you guys really have kind of owned that word, I guess. Tell us what creative capital is. What 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 is it? Creative capital is is a services for equity idea where you invest expertise in the form the thinking itself or the expertise itself can come in a range of different forms. Some of it can be strategic, creative. Some of it can be ongoing uh, implementation, outsourcing of a marketing team. So what expertise you're applying is is really plural and sort of very rainbow like. But the principle of it is you put that time in and that energy and value in in exchange for investment investment in equity and so your payback on that comes as exactly as it would any other investor and the way it goes in is exactly as it would any other investor so often we'll go in as part of a priced round alongside cash and what we're doing then is taking the direct need for cash capital off by providing some of the services that they were going to procure anyway so they can then deploy that cash on things that they need product whatever it might be supply chain people tech media uh, or we're doing it as part of an, you know, an ASA or a future share subscription. But the idea is, and the way it works is exactly the same as if we were putting cash in. And, it, and in fact, it's often, you know, it'll be discounted sometimes because cash is what's most important. It's the actual oxygen of a business at that point. But the value, if you like, or the, the deals that we're doing increasingly value the expertise higher than cash because of the way it brings a team in alongside the founders to make sure that you're you know, the outcomes you're trying to achieve are completely aligned, which they are aligned to some extent when you're deploying an agency externally because everybody wants the brand to win. But it really focuses the effort on other things like 
What's the future company valuation going to be? What's the actual trajectory of it going to be over? How is this marketing investment going to pay back in the short term or even the medium term? And that does make a difference. And the fact that you're invested partners, that you've got something to lose in time and effort. So yeah, it works exactly the same as investment. But then I think from a capabilities and expertise standpoint, it brings something very different because of the way in which the team is pulled together around invested, you know, joint partners invested. Yeah. Yeah, we're figuring out how, you know, how to move forward. So yeah, that's creative capital in a nutshell. Yeah. So before we kind of dive into one of the interesting things you mentioned there was kind of the, the relationship that you have with some of these businesses and, and how you're treating more of partners rather than the supplier, which, which is yeah. an interesting thing, which I want to touch on in a minute. I guess before we get into that, it's really interesting to talk about, you said it a couple of times, obviously everyone kind of knows what a startup is and everyone yeah. imagines, you know, two guys or two, two people rather in their garage somewhere in Silicon Valley coming up with a, a madcap <laughs> idea. But the word scale up is something that people know less, I suppose. Yeah. And, and even when we're explaining it to businesses themselves, who we deem as scale-ups, they sometimes aren't sure what the word means. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a definition of, in the eyes of Rising in particular, what is a scale-up business? How do you guys personally define it? I know you have some really good kind of, I guess, portfolio criteria or even values, I guess I would call them, which are sort of on your website. How do you sort of define a scale-up? An official definition, I think, the Scale-Up Institute classes scale-ups as growing at 20% yeah. year on year, either top-line growth or people. Yeah. So if you put it through the people lens, then I think a lot more businesses come into focus. But the way we would view it would be more are you on some kind of funding journey or not so there are a lot of there's a there's a difference between let's say independent side hustle type startups which can grow pretty big and you can you know you can have a product you can sell it online you can develop a marketing model around it and it could be a couple of people as you say almost with a stock in the bedroom or in the garage and they're developing quite a good top line growth on it and they're generating some profit but they aren't necessarily what we would call a scale-up. Scale-up, by our terms, is when there's funding going into these so that they need to go through the gears of growth such that the, that funding can receive a return. And I think that's really how we think of the difference between startup and scale-up. So I think you can define it however you like. Scale-up I mean, essentially just means we, we've got more cash to spend going faster and growing quicker. Yeah. We've entered a, a particular phase of growth where we know how our product's working. We've got early stage recognition. We've got a small audience. We think, And then cash goes in to scale that idea, basically. So it's almost like a proof of concept in marketing, product market fit, whatever you want to call it. And then the scale up bit comes off. So that would be a neat way of saying it. And the truth is that as you go through those things, it's a much messier idea maze than that. But essentially, one really clear definition is, are these guys on funding journeys? Is cash going in in order to make them go quicker into a market to achieve, you know, winner takes most status uh, to grow much more quickly than you would just seeing how it happens independently? It puts a slightly different pressure onto the business to get there quickly, to be able to get big enough that the money that they've taken along the, along that journey then makes sense. So I think that is a slightly different mindset than it is. We're experimenting with this. It's growing really fast. We're enjoying our success. What should we do? You know, we'd like to look at our options. It's quite different from where we're on a journey towards a very specific set of outcomes that means investors can get a return on their cash. So. Mm. That's loosely how we would do startup scale up. It doesn't mean, by the way, a lot of them in both cases, they might be doing very similar activities. Mm. We might be invested in both. One might be taking a longer view to get bigger. Because bearing in mind that a lot of the consumer product startups, their ultimate path isn't to IPO. Um, many of them are acquired along the journey by the large consumer goods yep. companies. And so in some ways, they're an innovation funnel. They're not really a scale up startup idea. So let's get going. Let's 
find our audience, let's do something different. And then once a corporation can see that that's going to work, they then plug the distribution on. That's what a startup would normally need cash for then. It's very, very difficult to build that scale. You know, the, all the machinery you need, the production, operation efficiencies, all that sort of stuff, sales teams, etc. So they go, well, let's meet up. You guys have got the rough concept. We've got the distribution. We'll get together. And those things then get acquired, you know, the three to five year mark. So it, it's totally possible that you're not a scale up in the way that I've just described, but can, you know, we would still consider it a worthy investment under the guise of it's more innovate market innovation because the, the bigger companies do find it difficult to spot those trends because it will require a le- level of authenticity with an audience that those big companies struggle with, basically. And so there is only one way to do it, which is let it develop outside of us and then we'll bring it in when they get somewhere with it. Which is totally true, by the way, because you use the example there, but we've worked with a few drinks brands and we know yeah, for a fact that yeah. Diageo have their own innovation hub. They, they have do, yeah. uh, their own, basically, effectively that, trying to start startups yeah. within a bigger enterprise and they don't ever seem to quite have the same hit as for instance so I was looking at a good example that Be- Beavertown yeah brilliant example ended up you know being acquired by one of the big boys but that brand could never have started without somebody just having that idea and having a, a clear direction for that brand I don't yeah. think anybody within a Diageo or within a P&G or Unilever necessarily does come up with the idea and ingrains it in culture in the same way so that it's ready to then be acquired later down the line. Yeah. So, Well, I think the advisors to those big companies always tell them develop it from within. It's much more expensive to acquire. So I think they're encouraged to get good at innovation and they would prefer it. But the realities are, as you say, I think Diageo in particular, certainly I remember a good few years back, innovation was a particular struggle for them. And I think it's partly that industry. It's so ephemeral and so transient and the trends that go on are so grassroots and moving around all the time that it was just very difficult for them. To, then conversely, their own process was taking about a year yeah. to, to think something through. So I think in their case, the, the extremes of that problem were quite great. So yeah, they've now got to still ventures, which... Yeah. I think more or less buys you before you start. They sort of, you know, a certain uh, very, very early part, essentially a bit like the, you know, we were talking earlier about selling the movie rights. You almost sell the rights to the idea quite early on. In all the distilled ventures, things we've been around, we've been around a couple, Seedlip was one, Neo Cocktails is another. We haven't been able to go in on Creative Capital because they're closed off with Diageo, basically, and, right. and they're in cash. But they, they are treated entirely like an independent, you know, venture-backed idea until that point and it's when and, and actually when they hit their marks i think the uh, the sums for the founders are, are really interesting over the amount of time they've put in it gets into the tens of millions pretty quickly so it's a model that works for everyone i think yeah. in that case yeah totally i think yeah when you when you separate it from the bigger beast it, like the distill ventures distill yeah. ventures example that's when it starts to work quite well i think i've read a story one time that was about the quickbook story and intuit quickbooks and how that was built and born and it was similar to that it was basically yeah. a skeleton team who were given their own office and said you're not really part of us and run it i think if you read like the lean startup there's like a whole chapter on it yeah but it was run in a very similar way to that it was like people from the outside brought in and said we want to start this type of thing that's going to disrupt us as a business basically yeah. challenge us as a business um, and go and make it so yeah yeah that's that's pretty i think where you can get you need the founder liquidity basically founders have to just get a really you know they have to be incentivized enough otherwise they find themselves backed by the big company but they don't really have a well enough paid stake in the upside and i think things like diageo ventures it's the perfect balance between okay it's probably not as much as you'd get if you make this a giant success all by yourself but it's considerably more than you would ever do it as part of you know innovating you know if you're ahead of innovation or something uh, or certainly on the marketing team 
And you don't have the risk of trying to go up against, at some point, as you will, Heineken, Diageo, you know, these guys yeah. have got really embedded distribution systems. So it's a perfect model between the two things. But I think it comes down to founder liquidity. You've got to, they've got to see enough incentive to want to imagine it themselves. Do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, where a lot of those company-backed venture ideas fall down because the founders themselves don't have enough upside, basically. They don't have, they don't have enough skin in the game. Cool. My next question then moves on to that, well, the point that we, we sort of spoke about earlier, but how do, how VCs and how, I guess people in startup land in particular, but I guess there's, there's two sides to that, right? There's VCs, the people who are funding these companies, and then yeah. there's the companies themselves who are being funded. How did they perceive, so there was a great quote that I read, you know, either you or somebody um, who wrote an article on behalf of Van Rising that said, spoke to a VC and, and they said the White Album from the Beatles didn't need a sleeve. Yeah. And the idea behind that was basically that it didn't need any brand or marketing or yeah. anything put onto it because the product itself was so brilliant. And yeah. that is kind of a stereotype or a common thing said within startup world. In particular, if you have a tech-based product and you see a lot of like SaaS-based products or in particular now moving into like deep tech and AI, yeah. they just think this is, this is just the best thing ever and people are gonna buy it regardless of what brand or marketing I have. And it, again, the terrible story that always gets spread around, well, Tesla doesn't do any brand marketing or advertising, which yeah. is obviously a complete falsehood <laughs> for a number of reasons that we don't have to get into now. But you know, it seems like within that world, brand and marketing arguably is a bit of a dirty word and the role of the CMO and the role of the head of brand in particular is arguably diminished next to the role of like the CRO or the head of growth. Yeah, I was just interested to know what kind of you know anecdotal conversations you've had and any challenges you've had to what you guys do with creative capital or what you've seen within the sort of startup world in terms of and people's perceptions towards brand and marketing yeah sure i, I mean I, let me speak to the tech side of that because i think on the consumer you know on the consumer products goods and services side i think mm. investors do recognize that as a battle of brand but on the tech side i think there has been there's a definite shift and my sense is that there's a shift towards brand. Two of the ventures we're currently involved with are designing brands well ahead of the tech arriving. Well, certainly in one case, the tech's about to be launched. In the other case, it's being built. And so they're already recognising the, the end value of that happening. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I think if you skirt back 10, 12 years, you essentially have the rise of network effects and things like Facebook. So the more users go on the platform, the more valuable it inherently gets. And so that takes care of itself. People like it, so more people join it, it gets more valuable and it goes around and you don't need marketing. And they were almost saying, if you need marketing, you, you, you don't have a product that's got network effects. Now that word's been then misinterpreted just to mean viral and a bunch of other things. But yeah. they were essentially saying, we want things where every time a user joins it, it gets more valuable by itself. And if you're having to market or go to marketing, you probably don't have one of those. And then what's happened as, it, as those network effects has played out is they have very, they, like anything, they, will, they, they hit different ceilings at different points. So if you're Uber, when you get to seven minutes wait time, the value of more people going onto that platform doesn't get any greater in the eyes of the user. But up until that point, the curve is getting more and more valuable. Each user that goes on it, everyone's going, wow, this is incredible. And they're sharing it with their friends and the value of the whole system's going up. But once it hits seven minutes wait time, it doesn't get any more valuable to the end user. If you get it to three minutes wait time, they don't perceive that to be any more valuable than at seven. So then Lyft can build exactly the same thing. Yeah. They hit seven minutes wait time. And now you have Purcell versus Ariel, Pepsi versus Coke. You're now into a brand battle. Yeah. And you know Uber's had to do a lot of work on its brand for a lot of reasons at this particular point. And Lyft, if you look at Lyft's brand, for example, versus Uber, it's deliberately much softer yeah. and cuddly around the edges than Uber's been. And I think what you've witnessed there is a very traditional sort of market of two. One's a bit more this, one's a bit more that. 
uh, in a brand way. And then you have platforms like Airbnb, which IPO'd, I think it was last year. I can't remember. It's somewhere during the pandemic. Yeah, it must have been towards the end of last year. I think early pandemic. They were obviously in the middle of sorting themselves out. But you know, if you look at their S1 and you look at the amount of pages that are committed to brand and the power of the brand, the vulnerability of the brand, now that paper has to outline all the potential risks to an investor. And you know, a huge chunk of it is our brand. Yeah. Um, and that's what they're saying. So they've kind of realized that you can, like anything, technology is product, products can be matched. And once that happens, it then becomes an emotional decision. You know, it's a, a, And it becomes more of an emotional decision than it does a rational one. I, I just think it's, it's the ways in which they're interpreting it. So they, they know brand needs to guide it. It needs to become, you know, people need to know about it like they do any other brand. It needs to have a set of values like any other brand. But I just think it's wiring into the tech products, so the role of UI and things like that in creating the feeling of that brand, I think is probably yeah. still true. So to the extent that the product by itself creates an emotional connection without marketing, I think is probably right. But again, still true of any product, it's packaging, it's you know how you unbox it, all those kinds of things. So my sense actually is that people going into markets are going great, the technology will eventually even out. And then what sideways markets are we going into? What will the power of our relationship with the audience look like? What does our retention look like? You know, Airbnb switched off advertising during the pandemic and realized people still search them for a whole host of things. And so they, they had a peak in a way at their, the, just the level of salience that they built, you know, through a lot of investment, but through a lot of other things as well. Again, there's a, there's a great origin story, the interface, the ideas of it. I mean, it's really, it's really just a price comparison site for a range of different yeah. you know, places to stay, but it doesn't begin life like that. And so there's a lot of clues around the role of brand, I think, in coming, you know, coming into it. But I think we were just in a period where a lot of this technology is very, very new. And the notion of network effects has always been there, but it just wasn't so possible so quickly. And I think then at that moment, you're thinking, that's all we need. We just need the network effects. And actually marketing, because don't forget, marketing is very, very expensive. And the trouble with consumer goods, direct to consumer, same thing, 10, 12 years ago, Spotify's cheap, Facebook's cheap. And they kind of think, wow, we don't need all of this traditional stuff and all this weight. But as time's gone on, they've realized actually these things, you know, consumer choice is very fickle and people don't care as much as they, you know, they don't think about it as much as the people inside these companies do. And so the cost of maintaining those relationships and building those relationships is really high and it's throwing the economics out on a lot of that direct to consumer stuff. And I think to some extent, tech too. So I think we're in a particular period of redress around what brand does now that some of that tech stuff's played out and got some of the some of those companies have got a lot bigger you know facebook's now in a place of like declining network effects the more people that join it the more disastrous it gets yeah you know so they're starting to see that oh it's not just a straight line that goes all the way to the moon all by itself so that's one part of it the other part of it is product-led growth which i i have a lot of time for it you know it's it's almost like make the product the marketing again nothing particularly yeah, new in that statement yeah. yeah and so it's almost like, what can we do in the product that, that is more self-marketing than, oh, we don't really have anything in the product, so what we'll do is we'll storytell around it. I think that is definitely a, a big risk. What we don't want to get involved with is where the amount of storytelling we're having to bake into a plan is, you know, it can in the short term, you know, whilst things are following on. And actually, it can be a really good time to do that because it's early and you can see the value of that then as you start to bring those products out. But fundamentally, if you don't have a product that can equal marketing experience, then I think, I think you're, you're, at, you're at such a disadvantage. Yeah. So I think that side of it is still true, that the product-led growth, in a way, they overlook, they overlook the role of emotional connection and they get too obsessed with 
feature. this yeah this feature will will look after itself which again just sort of isn't quite true because it's quite difficult to land a lot. some of them are smaller than they think you yeah. Know, yeah. in a busy world and tech does a lot for us now and i think we expect a lot of tech i actually think our expectations of it are beyond what it actually does today do you see what i mean i i, I think we think it can do lots of things that actually yeah. it struggles with a little bit and so when someone comes in and goes hey we've solved it i think we're like yeah we're, we've been waiting for you, you know? yeah and is that, i think there's actually a bit of a there's loads of interesting things to unpick and what we've been saying by the way while i've been listening <laughs> yeah. but i think just on that on that point there i think actually there's a bit of a turn away from again we, we say tech but like for instance one of my favorite at least from a kind of tone of voice but also um, ux and ui perspective one of my favorite startups or brands scale-ups I suppose you say is lemonade the, yeah. the insurance brand yeah. they've effectively gone completely the other way and i guess mailchimp is another good example yeah. of that right but building tech brands that feel more human because realistically we actually don't want to talk to a robot like people have that say you know at first it was amazing when it was like oh on google i don't need to sit on i don't need to sit on my phone talking to a custom service rep or being on hold for ages or listening to waiting music i can just chat to yeah. a chatbot i can and that was amazing at the beginning right and now we've i think we've got to an inflection point where people are actually going further the other way i know for instance we've changed i won't mention the name of the banks i don't want to slander <laughs> anyone um, but we were with one of the challenger banks for instance and you could never speak to a customer service rep to deal with anything to do with the accounting that we had effectively so we've gone yeah. back to we've gone to NatWest now gone back yeah. to one of the more traditional big boys yeah um, and a lot of like you said those feature-based businesses um people are kind of going the other way and, and, and i guess challenger banks and fintech is a great example of that they're in real trouble there's there's tons of them they've been over invested in yeah and now just like you said there's each of them have a different colored card but effectively all the same business model and people are starting to see oh actually traditional banks aren't that bad they're actually having a brick and mortar place or somebody to be able to speak to or a rep yeah. and when you look at a lot of for instance halifax ads at the moment that is literally the strategy they're going down it's you know where the people's bank we've got a face behind our bank where you where yeah. in the community we're talking to people where you know from co-op to halifax to natwest etc so i actually think there is a bit of cultural turn away from you know let me speak to a robot and have things automated yeah. and have things really easy and like you said have tech tech do everything for me to people realizing Oh, actually, people can actually do these things a bit easier. Um, we don't have to have everything automated. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think there, was, there were tech products and services that were really going into existing markets to steal share yeah. as a new one. Yeah. And the story sounded more like the tech was going to do something more interesting than it actually was. So it's really, but I think there is a role for that. I think you've just got to be really clear mm. that that's what you're going after is we're going to go in and steal share simply because the category hasn't had a new entrant for a while and it could do with a fresh take. And then you can take that brand and then, you know, in a way, move into adjacent markets. Yeah. And Lemonade's a really good example. I don't, I'm not up to speed on what Lemonade offers different. I know there was a few things that seemed different. It was sort of, but it was mostly around cutting out intermediaries, I think. And yeah, kind of really, it's just like a breath of fresh air, basically, into yeah. a very stodgy market. And that's all it is. It's just there to, to steal share from, from the existence on the basis yeah. of that seems newer, seems more relevant to me. Taking a lot of things that were analog and also turning them digital as well yeah. within that world. And then, yeah, the brand on top of that. So, again, that's why it's a great example because there are other digital insurance providers that you can go with. It's just they've built something that feels fresh, modern, yeah. talks in a way that people prefer scary insurance providers, <laughs> yeah. I guess you'd say. Yeah. The other interesting example that you, maybe somebody talks about network effects there. And I think one of the best examples of this and the best promotion for brand and advertising that I've seen of late, at least, is so we talk about network effects and if you ask somebody what is the app in the last three years that has shown network effects to the best degree it's got to be tiktok and it, you know the, the speed and yeah. just the virality of the product itself yeah. and the amount that you want to share with people yeah. and you can 
anyone can become a content creator, et cetera, et cetera. Amazing, right? Mm. So you would think, surely they don't ever have to do any marketing. They put ad, they sponsor the Euros, they sponsor World Cup, yeah. they put a, a big, big TV ads out, out of home, et cetera, et cetera. They are probably the best example of, of a business that says, yes, we do have network effect and we are going to grow virally, but brand and advertising is super important to us and it's super important as a, a differentiator and something that makes us distinct uh, amongst our competitors. And I, I think... Again, you know, I wouldn't know for sure. It'd be great to get if TikTok or watching. Yeah. It'd be great to get somebody on from, from yeah. TikTok to talk about that. But yeah, they're the best example of not relying on the tech or relying on the product to do the whole job for you. And that brand advertising is important, not just in making people aware of who you are, but also what you stand for and how you're different to the one next to you, just like the Uber and Lyft example that you spoke. Yeah, about. I mean, you, if you dig into all of those growth, growth, I mean, scaling stories, they all there's all a level of advertising and you know pure yeah. traditional advertising investment in them. And I think there's a couple of parts of that. It's a feature of when you're starting to really properly scale over into the mainstream. And I think it's got a couple of functions. One is just getting off the screen and out into the real world, I think helps. There's a certain multi-channel dimensionality. It exists. It's real that comes into effect for people. And, you know, one of the things, one of the tricks in the playbook we've got is to try and put a brand on posters as soon as we can, even if the value of that poster is for the photo of the poster. Yeah. Because it just gives a feeling that it's real and it lives in the real world and it's part of us and it's around us, which is quite difficult to establish purely through the zeros and ones. It's, it, that, that's a different feeling. It works. I want it to be there. But somehow when it enters a physical world, it really enters a different bit of your brain and the two join up very nicely. So that's one aspect of it, I think, is dimensionalizing the brand and making it feel more a part of our everyday lives than is possible just through a screen alone. But I think there's another part of it as well, uh, which is around trust. And at the moment, going into those big, you know, into the big traditional channels, partly because of their history, it's not always because of their awareness and reach and attention, all the other stuff I think that there's a lot of propaganda around. I think it's because they're established, they're regulated. You know, you can't put an ad on TV without it going through some sort of pre-vet. So it has a perception of being proper you know, when you're TikTok, you've got a big, you've got a lot of trust issues coming down the track and you've got yeah. Uber. So I think a lot of this is technology when it's scaling that fast and it's doing so well, actually tackles its own particular issue called trust. And it's probably true of any brand that spikes up really, really fast into our consciousness. There's a point at which people want to scratch the surface of it, want to know it's proper, that it's yeah. being, that it's doing things properly, that it's well run. And I actually think that at that point, advertising is doing that job probably more than it is user acquisition or anything like that. But it's yeah. still a vital part of the puzzle um i mean there's a reason that uh, one of our favorite quotes is there's a reason nobody ever said as seen on facebook but they did say as seen on <laughs> yeah. tv right oh, especially now um, yeah yeah exactly yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's interesting you mentioned the the kind of playbook there and i guess that was one of the questions i want to touch on if you if there were if there, you know there's a scaling brand watching this founder cmo yeah. head of brand a scaling brand what is your playbook i guess supposedly yeah. without giving all of the secrets away but what are your top tips to those scaling brands how do they start? How is it different to being a top 50 advertiser, for instance? What are the core tenets of what they should be doing? Cool. Well, if you are a um, scale-up brand that has a level of physical distribution, which, in, you know, this year there's a real redress of the balance back to physical distribution and its power alongside digital, then deploying connected TV, Facebook, or your own multiplex of digital paid social and outdoor is the well, we see rate of sale just go immediately round in those distribution outlets. So if you're building any kind of momentum through or you want to build any kind of momentum, essentially you've got to turn up to retail with one of two stories. We're going to invest in advertising around these locations 
that will increase rate of sale. And we've got the data that proves that around very micro store level. And so that's just a really easy one because all of those channels can be geo-targeted. You, you yeah. put the map of distribution in, you shine spotlights only over the top of that distribution. And no surprise, you get exactly the effect you were. Whereas that was always thus, but it was a bit blobbier and it was yeah. a bit more long-term, medium-term. Was here, we're seeing like, we put the beams on and the wheel goes straight round and you can then get the payback straight away. So that's working in a more immediate way than, oh, well, we put it out, we didn't, wasn't quite sure if it worked. Well, next year, you know, but don't worry, awareness is going up, that yeah. kind of thing. Or you need to turn up with a TikTok story, which is we're going viral on TikTok. We've got loads of eyeballs. A Tesco, a Boots, they're quite interested in that because I think they, they like their customers to be in that space. So they have a probably a disproportionately, they, they place a, a disproportionate importance on that at the moment. So yeah, one of those are one of the two things to turn up with. And then if you're a bit earlier and not ready to, you know, put the foot on the gas, you know, and you're, you're not, you're not kind of going for penetration and wider awareness, say, and I think that journey should start as early as you possibly can. Then it's almost the opposite. It's being really clear what the niche community you're serving are and what your distinctiveness there with that niche community is. And as some of these channels are growing, you know, becoming so widespread, there is a sort of opposite effect as well, which is these micro communities are growing. These sort of micro interest communities have got more ability to find each other and actually be discovered and almost discovering yourself that you're part of those communities in ways that were never before, you know, never before possible. And I think that's what TikTok is, is doing. That's what its power is over the other channels. It's not just it's a new thing on our phone that we're watching, but it helps us bump into things we didn't think we were going to enjoy. And up until now, digital hasn't had that capability. It's yeah. been, we know what you like in the past, we know what your friends like in the past. We're going to make some judgments around that. But essentially, we're going to show you what you already like and you're going to get locked in a kind of echo chamber of that. Now, that's very valuable, that echo chamber. But the real unlock is, oh, I had no idea. I was really interested in the history of London and now you can send me a history of London book and I can join a community, you know, because I'd never bumped into that content before in the way that in some ways actually traditional television would do for you or, the, you know, open the newspaper, land on page eight, bump into a thing, that serendipity. And the idea of sort of, publishing things that seem to appear to have very niche interest suddenly are almost like you know it's hyper-targeted broadcast kind of stuff because there are actually a lot of people that and they might only have half an interest in it but they can kind of come into the community and it's almost the opposite it's like look what what is that niche interest that you're serving then how can you build almost small it's almost how do you reduce that focus to increase your appeal yeah. if you see what i mean so i think that's those are the two basic playbooks we're, we're and we're looking at you know, one, it's wider audience, you know, making sure rate of sale goes through as you as your footprint grows. And the other one's almost the opposite. It's who's the hardcore that we can build something around and how are we talking to them? How often are we talking to them? Through what channels are we talking to them? And then how are we looking at that over the longer term to be able to push into, into new markets? Yeah. So those are the basic two levers. Like, yeah, what's the small focus that we can scale? And the other one is basically hyper-targeted broadcast. Like what can we put right on top of wider awareness you know in order to do a traditional job but just in a, in a more efficient way and you know the, like i said the, the technology especially over the last two years really come i think come on more than people realize you're making me feel really um shameful about my tiktok for you page now i'm not, <laughs> I'm not getting history of london i'm getting like game of thrones fan theories and obscure <laughs> yeah. obscure conspiracy theories and yeah, you gotta be, you got to be careful what you start like you're getting yeah. into on that thing because it will pull you into a <laughs> hole that you don't want to be into i'll make sure i yank myself out of it um interesting example that you sort of touched on there the kind of viral tiktok trend style brand i think little moons is a great example of that yeah. um, from from previous which just kind of blew up out of nowhere and then but then interesting also went into our friends at lucky generals the, their first ads they definitely yeah. went, went down the route that you talked about there we're like oh we're a big tiktoky type thing yeah great now we're stocked okay now what do we do and then went down the path of 
let's do targeted digital spends and yeah. promote the product and actually tell people what our brand stands for. Yeah. And we've hit that first inflection point. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit yeah. on, on what you said there, because I know you guys are really bullish on connected TV. Yeah. And when we work with clients in particular, we don't always jump straight to CTV. I think there's still a big place for doing traditional one out of door buys, but also going big on TV. Yeah. Yeah, Go, sure. Starting on... So for instance, and again, there's a sensible way to do it, but starting on maybe some of the lesser channels on a kind of Dave challenge, et cetera, but something that's going to get you not just a one particular audience, but also yeah. amongst an audience and then building your way up to doing something that's more yeah. traditional broadcast led because arguably, like you said there, this, there's, there's this ephemeral thing of being, you know, as seen on TV, which perhaps, as you said, there is maybe just the later stage. You're just talking about the early stage, but there is something ephemeral in, you know, imagine you're a shaving product and you want to buy men who shave as an audience or men as an audience for instance yeah. um, but specifically men who shave and you can buy that through connected tv and great that one audience sees you but there's actually something special in being able to buy a slot on the rugby world cup final and then you're reaching those men and then you're also reaching all the other men who don't shave but then you're also reaching their whole families who are watching who will then just inherently know about you as a brand and will build that trust synonymous of having kind of a, a word of mouth or cultural zeitgeist type feeling. It's the reason people still buy Super Bowl ads, right? And, yeah. and brands still um, yeah, yeah. sponsor Love Island. So you guys think that's total bollocks or? No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we push hard on connected TV because I think the amount of publicity that linear TV gets is already there. You've got the think boxes and the, you know, the lesbianes and all that. that. That's fairly well covered. So I think we push particularly on connected TV to fight its corner a bit more aggressively. So it's partly just to make sure people are really clear we've got an alternate point of view. But there's no denying those other channels work in exactly the way that you said. In fact, things like ClearScore, you know, we scaled mainly through like daytime TV, like almost lowest price eyeballs, very high frequency, very, very low cost. So then you had a very low cost you know, for acquisition because it's free, yeah. free trial free and things. I think the thing to be mindful of as a generalisation is that, and it's going to change potentially with Netflix's move into advertising, that's what makes it kind of volatile and where there's volatility, there's opportunity. But as you get into that, those free channels, the price premium that you can defend sort of gets less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you are a, a, a higher priced item, then finding an audience where you can maintain some of that premium status because in some of those you know mass linear slots you're in alongside all sorts of other brands and you're on very high frequency as i said and they're looking for sort of you know it's almost like where you if if you if you've got a value proposition or a very very mass market proposition it's probably still the best place to be if you're trying to build niche and premium it's almost too mass i think at that stage to be able to defend a premium appropriately to a community etc etc so it is that argument of impact to a relevant community to defend a price and command a premium and and also command attention because some of the connected tv stuff they're unskippable and all this sort of thing yeah. so it's it's proper lean back big screen viewing where we can almost make us make more of a statement versus the kind of on in the background and i think it just depends what type of brand you are if you are a you know we've got a vegan pet food then i think we would be more cautious around something like connected tv because Dogs are in everybody's homes. It wants to feel sort of as available and as accessible yeah. as possible versus say when we're using, doing something like Neo Cocktails and we want world-class bar premium experience and, you know, the first box you're going to pay is going to be anywhere between 20 and, you know, 40, 60 pounds. Then actually finding those audiences where the... The, thing, the point that you make that I think is really true is with connected TV, its journey towards interest-based audiences is still forming. And so you have to make predictions up front about what that audience is going to be demographically in terms of spend. I mean, they've got a lot of cool data sources that you can draw upon. 
but you're still making some kind of predictions around that. Whereas, of course, what's really what's coming into focus is let the algorithm tell you where your audience is. And I think as Finecast and platforms like that get more evolved, that's what they're going to be able to do. So we want to be on that curve as it gets as the technology gets smarter and smarter. So you're right. We then have to make a prediction. Our prediction could be wrong or off. And then, you know, do you see what I mean? Whereas certainly in linear TV, it just goes a bit to everyone. And so you can kind of see if there's an audience there kind of thing. Totally. But again, I think as Netflix, as Netflix lands and starts to offer advertising, I think their ability to deliver an interest-based audience for you without you going, well, we think it's these people in these areas that buy these sorts of things with these sorts of brands. I predict it to be quite high. And then suddenly then connected TV will perform like TikTok. Okay. You know, you'll be able, you'll be able to seek out the audience for you rather than you have to try and work it out up front. And, and I guess there were two questions. It's just, just a quick wrap up, but very quick ones. My last question was about, uh, my last proper question was, and you kind of touched on it already there, but what are you most excited about? And you've already touched on there. Netflix is something that we spoke about a bit before we started recording, but what are you most excited about in the advertising and media landscape in the next one to three years? What do you think is going to shake it up the most? The thing I'm most excited about is discovery and the, the move from digital to, we know what you've done in the past, so we're going to make some rough ideas about and we know what your friends do so therefore we've got a pretty good idea of who you are and what you're into to through content and through being able to show you different things being able to unlock audiences that they themselves didn't know were there (laughs) um, because they bump into something they didn't realize they liked and because the data from the past or the data through your friends is ultimately limited and so the ability to just show you things and see what audiences latch onto and the way they move. That's the big shift. And like I said, I think in a way, so it's sort of back to the future because that's what used, what used to happen is you'd bump into things on TV that were scheduled for you. You got shown stuff, you then suddenly realise you would fall in love with. And through it moving from, we, know, we think we know what you like to, let's try lots of things out and see what's really in there. Yeah. I think you've got all sorts of potential for brand or finding audiences for creativity. You've got all sorts of potential there. Whether that power resides within agencies or people itself, I think is a whole other matter. The TikTokification of advertising. Um, yeah, just got back to discovery, yeah. It's discovery and serendipity, but at kind of like an accelerated computerized level. So I think that's, I think that's broadly a good thing if you're in the business of brand. Cool. And then the final wrap up, we just like to do this at the end of every podcast. We ask somebody for a podcast or something to listen to, (laughs) a book, and then also a person to follow. Okay. Oh God, I ingest so much stuff, but I can never remember who who or where it's come from. Okay. So on podcast, go for Let's Appreciate. Okay. Can't remember her surname. It's Kyla Scanlon, I think is, is her surname. Basically does an assessment of markets, stock market, bit of stock market, bit of business, bit of economy, macroeconomy, social... And it comes in a really sort of 20 minute, quite trippy, almost like, yeah, kind of like a kind of lean back, almost meditative kind of format. Cool. So she's well worth a listen. Amazing digest. She ingests everything from all sorts of different locations and it gets packaged up into a really sort of soothing yep. 20 minutes. That's a good one. Uh, what so else have I got to say? Something to read. Something to read. I just, I just finished reading, um, after, I think it's called After Steve, which is the book about Tim Cook's, essentially Steve Jobs dying and Tim Cook taking over. I think the byline is how Apple became a trillion dollar company and lost its soul. And it's brilliant for anybody that's been in the creative businesses that's also experienced business because it's essentially a discussion around creative breakthroughs as the source of strength over mathematical ones. And and I think it weaves the two things together brilliantly in a a very balanced way. So that's definitely worth a read. Plus, it's all the fun characters and products and stuff that we know. And there's just a ton of really fun stories in there. Uh, And then person to follow. uh, I don't know, actually. I don't know if I really follow anyone. Um, Pass. Oh, can I come cool. back to you? Yeah. Uh, you can give, instead, you can give me the, the final thing, which is um, 
who should we have on next? Preferably a brand owner that you know and know and love, somebody who. I I would really love to meet the guys at Thursday, and I think it's because well, I think for you guys as well. I think because they are doing a lot. Of, if if I look at the rule, the playbook of things, they're doing all the right things. Yeah. They're picking off a niche. They're getting really noisy and hustly about their marketing. They've got a point. They've got an occasion. That they've made those sacrifices of, of focus in order to increase appeal. So I think to get on the inside of where they think that's going and is there room in the dating market? Is it really about a dating app in the end or is it going to be other things? But certainly I would look at their, you know, my evaluation from the outside is sort of tick, 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 yeah. tick, doing all the right things. It would just be great to know what, where, they, where they'd like to go and what they see it doing because it looks like a crowded market to me. Yeah. My, my theory from the outside, which actually got... Uh, a little bite from George, the founder, on uh, online was that they're making a lot of noise with the ultimate goal of being acquired by the the thing that you said Just earlier. Right? Yeah. Match dot com comes and buys yeah. Hinge. They come and buy everybody who makes enough noise. So I'm sure there's a yeah. fat deal uh, waiting on their table. At well, they've some got point they're on soon, something but... like the the again. So it seems like the dating markets. It's a bit like cookbooks. It's sort of blown up, but it hasn't improved anyone's yeah. experience of dating. Yeah. In fact, it might got worse. <laughs> so, and so this, I think, because they have physical events and all sorts of yeah. things and just building it around this cycle of yeah. Thursday, I think is really smart. So yeah, maybe that's picking off a niche with a view to yeah. dating. It's arguably become more of an events company yeah. than a dating app from what I've heard from people who use it. And I think they're tomorrow or today even, as far as they tell they're hosting the world's biggest single event. It's almost like a return to what right. dating was, right? And we're like, well, I wouldn't know. I'm kind of from the dating app generation, but from what I've heard, it was... It was all about singles nights and getting people to events and <laughs> brand partnerships and partnering with people to say, look, we've got a big group of community of singles that we can bring to your place. Give us some money or partner with us because you've got this audience. Yeah. Arguably, they could be the next big advertising platform. When I think after two years of being locked up, things that bring people together in person have got an amazing yeah. advantage right now. So yeah, that sounds really cool. So yeah, Thursday, if you're out there, come talk to your boy. Cool. If you like the podcast, please share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or even just to a mate. If you or anyone you know runs a brand that you think would be perfect for Small Talk, then get them to hit us up on hello at smallworld.marketing. We're Small World, and this was Small Talk.